0: When life gives you lemons, just get up and leave.
1: <laughs> Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz, here with the usual crew. So we'll be kicking things off today with Nerd Alert, with James, as always, hanging out in your garage. How are you, James? I'm tired. It was a bi- it was yeah. a big
2: week last week. It was, it was a- kind of a big week. Well, yeah, because uh, we, we had... So my, my kid is is one of those kids who is in like one of those little learning pod things because otherwise we can't function um and uh yeah bbsd shut down boulder valley school district shut down starting this week so there are a bunch of parents who are freaking out and but our our kid uh in her pod had a very minor coronavirus scare so we had to everyone kind of had to like you know just kind of splinter off for a couple of weeks before everything you know got the all clear so it was a little a little little throwback reminder to how things were in april and it was not good yikes no bueno
1: abby you're in an ikea parking lot for some reason explain yourself
3: yeah i really like to spice things up and move around just to get a little bit of different scenery when i'm podcasting
2: <laughs> tom's what's tom's buying in ikea right now
3: a stepladder hmm. <laughs> well, the, the,
2: the problem with him going to buy a stepladder at Ikea is, you know, he didn't just beeline it straight for the for the stepladder is at Ikea. I mean, there's an awful lot of other things at Ikea that he could have been that he could be kind of checking out at the moment.
3: Luckily, it's Tom's, and he doesn't really buy things. Um,
0: I was I was gonna I was gonna duck in there and ask him about if he goes and gets some meaty balls from IKEA, you know the ones I mean. But yeah, he
3: like he doesn't he doesn't buy things to the point where like his entire outfit today was like a sweater from the Baku European Games and the pants from hmm. the Olympics. <laughs> um, but. But yeah, uh, he was like, "Oh, you want to come into IKEA with me?" And I was like, "Well, we record in thirty minutes, and the exit takes an hour to get to from the from the start, so can't happen."
1: Alas,
4: so
3: I'm just in the car.
1: Jose. Yeah. Your dog just farted. I'm sorry. Yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, to to avoid that, she's tip tapping all around the room. She's now at my feet, but she's almost 13. And You know, with old dogs, th- those farts are the worst. So, <laughs> it was uh, it was horrible. It was horrible. Well, but I'm s- I'm
1: sorry to hear that. Yeah. And uh, and Shoddy Dave, you're you're at probably the most famous Four Seasons I can think of.
0: <laughs> I am indeed. I've managed to jazz my Zoom background up. I got a nice digger in the background, some, uh, <laughs> some what are they, witches, that's do you call them in the US? Yeah. Some
2: traffic cones. I've traffic cones.
0: Up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lovely picture.
1: Anyway, as usual, we've waffled around for many minutes now. We're going to talk about the 2020 bike racing season today, but we're going to wait for Dane to show up for that one. So we're going to kick off with Nerd Alert, which is going to be all about GPSs, bar mounted versus Wristwatch style. But before we get into either of those things, this week's episode is brought to you by Calfee Designs, founded in Santa Cruz, California in 1989 by Craig Calfee. Calfee Designs manufactures high quality bikes from carbon fiber and bamboo. Calfee makes tandems, road gravel bikes, adventure bikes, as well as components, but soon they'll be adding a mountain bike to their lineup as well. As a bonus, Kalfi has a world-famous carbon repair department dedicated to keeping carbon frames out of landfills. Check out KalfiDesign.com to see all of their models. And thanks to Kalfi Designs for supporting this episode.
2: I might also add that Kalfi also makes one of my favorite bottle cages because they basically make a carbon fiber version of a king titanium cage. Like It looks super classic, but it's carbon fiber, and it's really light. It's not like crazy light, but it looks really cool, and it's carbon fiber, and they're actually not that expensive. I've actually had
1: a frame repaired by them before. Back in uh, the end of my college years, uh, actually, my wife's frame got sort of blown off of a roof rack that it was not perfectly attached to and cracked the top tube, and we sent it over to Calfian for a couple hundred bucks. They wrapped it up, sent it back, and she kept racing on it for a couple years. So personal experience with Kalfi's repair services, which are, they're they're world-renowned at this point. They were doing it earlier than many others. There's now lots of other options out there, but Kalfi's been at it for a very long time. So thanks to Kalfi for sponsoring today's episode. Now let's get into Nerd Alert. We're switching everything up today. We're starting with Nerd Alert. We're going to finish off with bike racing. So James, Nerd Alert,
2: Nerd Alert. Nerd, alert. Nerd, nerd alert. alert, nerd alert, nerd what alert, What are we talking about today? But we're talking about GPS computers, but in kind of a little bit more of a general sense, because uh, by the time you were listening to this, this will have just gone live, uh, probably maybe right now as you listen to this, actually. But uh, Wahoo has finally announced the release of their multi-sport watch, the Element Rival. Uh, for those of you in the know, this is hardly a surprise, because uh, Wahoo had to file an FCC uh, I can't remember what it stands for Federal Communications something uh, in the U.S. Uh, So this has been kind of leaked for about a year and a half now. But anyway, it's official. Um, It is a multi-sport watch that is ostensibly designed for triathlon. I mean, it has some neat stuff like, you know, this sort of like touchless transition thing they're talking about where it knows when you're out of the water and are on your bike and are off your bike and running. Um, But uh, it got me thinking, you know, I have used... Uh, GPS watches before and I obviously normally use a GPS computer that's bar mounted Um, but it got me thinking you know someone someone was or we were having a little internal discussion on this thing and sort of like you know should we even write this thing up because it's supposed to be a triathlon watch but you know unless you're looking at your computer on your bars all the time why wouldn't you use a GPS watch instead of a bar mounted computer because I mean wouldn't it actually be more useful or, I guess, more versatile?
4: Um, it's winter. Well, it's autumn here now. So you wear those long-sleeved jerseys that kind of are closed at your wrists, which means that I can't even look at my iWatch anymore. So having my bike computer on my wrist in winter time doesn't seem particularly handy.
2: I'll, I'll, I'll
1: propose the opposite argument here, which is that I don't want to look at my bike computer most of the time. Uh, and maybe that has something to do with me going slower than I used to go and not really liking the numbers that I tend to see on my bike computer. But yeah, like I, I ride without one more often than not these days. And I do like to, you know, keep track of my miles and chuck stuff on Strava and stuff like that. So I generally just run that on my phone almost all the time. But it would be nice to not have to remember to pull that out and start it and just have a watch that sort of did everything on its own or that I could just hit a button or something like that. I can definitely see the value in that. And I, I think that I don't know, we, we're, cyclists, we're really used to having that computer right in front of us, right? On the handlebars. We can stare at it. We can see the power number. We can see the speed. We can see the distance, whatever. I, I like not knowing those things. I don't know about you guys, like I, I, I enjoy going out, you know, I know where I'm going because I'm riding near my house, <laughs> I'm not like I'm going to get lost. But I, I like just not, not having to stare at numbers while I'm out riding my bike. I tend to look at other things more often. It, when
2: I don't have something on my handlebars. It, it's funny because I I definitely used to be like that a lot. And then I got to the point where uh, where more often than not, when I head out for a ride, I really have to be home at a certain time. So like I really <laughs> need to know what time it is pretty much all the time. Uh, and we should point out that I have a child and Kaylee does not. Um, True. But... I have, again, I have used GPS watches before in the past, and I, I actually kind of like them a lot because like you said, Kaylee, I mean, you know, or kind of like you, I should say, I, mean, I do often like to head out for a ride and I don't want all that data kind of like in my face. And even if you you know, make a point of not looking at it, like, it's still there. Like it's still almost like kind of like tempting you. It's like, hey, look at me, look at me. Um, but if you have this watch or if you run Strava on your phone or something like that, I mean, you can just record everything in the background and have all your data. What I like about the idea of a watch is that the battery life is a lot better. I mean, Wahoo's claiming I think 24 hours in GPS mode, which is pretty awesome. Um, it's not very expensive, all things considered. It's 379 dollars US, so it's very comparable to a bar, like a kind of like a you know medium-level bicycle GPS handlebar-mounted computer. Uh, it still works as a watch. You still get like your text messages and all the other stuff, and you don't have to transfer it from bike to bike if you have multiple bikes. Like I can use it if I'm skiing. I can use it if I go for a hike. I don't run, so I'm not going to use it running. Um, so, I mean, to me, it just seems a lot more versatile. So, if you don't need the mapping and if you don't need that display on your handlebar, it's honestly kind of a little surprising to me why these things aren't more popular than they are for cycling.
1: Maybe it's because they're known as triathlon watches, and cyclists don't like things that triathletes use. Well, how do we how do we
2: fix that? How do we fix that? Does <laughs> do, does Wahoo have to make it arrow? Do they have to like offer like a Tour de France color? Do they have to offer like they, they should offer, like, you know, they they could do, like, little digital backgrounds. Like, you know, hey, you could have your Tom Bowden background now. I think that'd be sweet. Or, like, make it so it doesn't actually work when you're swimming. Just have it, di- like, like, have it not work
1: at all. Like, stop, yeah. get out of the water. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to sink. <laughs> this is dangerous. <laughs> uh, so, I, I've often, um, to sort of return to the, ri- like, just numbers on my handlebar versus numbers on my wrist. I've often said that... Uh, like baggy shorts, for example, are like a mindset thing for me. When I go out mountain biking, sometimes I'll go out in spandex and I'll go sort of rip around in a cross country bike and, and I'm out there to like, I'm fitness riding basically. Right. And then other times I put the baggies on and this is the same thing when I'm gravel riding too, something about putting baggy shorts on like changes the mindset and makes it so I'm just less interested in going really fast and riding hard and, you know, going as fast as I can all the time. And I think not having numbers in front of me does a similar thing. When I have a number in front of me, particularly when I have a power number in front of me, I'm sort of incapable of not riding to power, basically, particularly if I'm riding solo. Uh, and so I, I, again, I like the idea of not of not having that, but having a way to keep track of everything without the sort of like, oh no, the number's gone down kind of feeling, which I would love to just ignore, but I'm not personally capable of doing so so better if i just sort of remove it from, from my view completely and stick it on my on my wrist i think i need to get a, a wrist mounted gps thingy now that yeah. i'm
2: thinking i don't have one but now that i'm talking about it i feel like i need one yeah i mean i'm, I'm looking forward to using one again because you know like you said i mean it, it it does change your mindset for sure and i you know more often than not i i sort of just want to keep track of things and like maybe you want to look at some data afterward but more often not but I don't want it necessarily just in my face all the time. So I, I really like the idea of this thing. I'm really looking forward to, to checking it out. Um, I don't know when it will be here, um, but I don't know. I think it's a cool idea that more people should consider personally.
0: I remember back in the uh, the days when I was fit, a bit like Kaylee, when he was fit, that we used to have the polar heart rate monitor watches. And yeah, yeah, you'd strap them to the handlebars for racing, but I always found them useful for, uh, tracking your fitness or supposed fitness via your heart rate you get up in the morning lie as still as possible and get that st- your watch Your watch was on your wrist or next to your bed so you could check how low your heart rate was get- it was like a competition every morning see if you can get it below <laughs> whatever get-, get it as close to I think it was Miguel Indurain had like a 27 beat heart rate at one point it was re- recorded but yeah you used to try and get it as low as possible and you obviously can't really do that with a easily with a bar mounted computer it seems a bit stupid having it next to you but like even now that it's a hell of a lot better you've got the sensors on the watch themselves so uh i'm all for it myself plus at the moment with being locked down and only being able to get out for like an hour and a, a kilometer away like running Does unfortunately seem quite appealing at the moment. So um, Mm. yeah,
1: (laughs) nothing. Nothing about running is ever appealing. Uh, You can glean a lot from heart rate, right? This is sort of this is a bit of a tangent here, but uh, you know, things like like Whoop come to mind, right? Which is uh, essentially you just wear it on your wrist and it and it keeps track of of sort of heart rate patterns and can tell you things about your rest and your recovery and. You know how you're recovering from a ride, whether you're recovering from a ride, whether you're ready for the next big ride. Your so stress some of the and anxiety levels, stress and anxiety levels, like some of the stuff that 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 can be gleaned from heart rate these days is actually pretty amazing. You know, I think that cyclists as a whole were very power focused, right? Because it, I mean that makes sense, right? It's the one number, it's the it's the actual number that goes into the math to how fast you go, right? Your heart rate really is irrelevant to how fast you're going. Uh, except for that it's generally tied in some way to your power output. So no great surprise that we are super power focused. But I do think it's worth kind of taking a step back. And I remember doing a bunch of episodes of uh, Fast Talk with my friend Trevor back when I was at Velo news and we made those those podcasts. Uh, and, and he's a huge proponent of watching heart rate in a lot of ways, just like Shadi was talking about, you know, keeping track of your resting heart rate, keeping track of your Heart rate decoupling while you're riding. So, basically, like how your heart rate is sort of separating from your power output. Uh, You know, a perfect example of that is like when I was making my Everesting attempt, and all of a sudden my heart rate and my power were getting closer and closer and closer together. So, like, you know, 150 heart rate at the start of the ride would have been 280, 290 watts, and instead it was like 180, 190 watts, and they're getting closer and closer and closer. That decoupling, right? you can learn a lot from heart rate and it's less sort of myopic staring at power numbers. I just want to go faster. It's less of that kind of feel. I think when you're just sort of either looking at these things later or just keeping a general eye on them. Uh, I, I think that cycling as a whole can kind of step back away from power a little bit and, and start looking at some of these heart rate figures. Cause it it is, it's, it's your body, right? The, the power output is just an output. Heart rate is, is, what your body's actually doing
0: the other thing with uh heart rate is it's a lot more affordable to get into like like the watch what three hundred and seventy dollars where a power meter is going to cost you at like a minimum of five six hundred dollars upwards that's for your base model i'm guessing so yeah it's a lot more accessible and it's a starting point that's where we used to you used to kick off from know your resting heart rate know your max heart rate check where you're sort of wearing your race and you could yeah play about with it there to see how fit you were
2: well i was just going to point out just just to clarify i mean this thing does connect with heart rate monitor, or this does this thing does connect with power meters should you have one so you can still ride with power it's just not going to have the number right in front of you on your face all the time unless you're like riding around all the time like this which is probably not a good idea
1: but that's what i like about it i don't want to see it i don't i don't want to see my power numbers <laughs> don't want to see them it's bad news Nothing but bad news in the power numbers.
0: You just want to be disappointed when you get home and do look at it, innit, it, Kayleigh? (laughs) Let's be honest, though. Like, look at the computers now. You're getting so much more data than we used to get, like with the little um, VETA computers or cat-like computers. Avocet. Exactly, Avocet. Whatever happened to them? They were awesome. So skinny, so neat and tidy. (laughs)
1: Little wire winding its way down your your brake line or your brake that no, wasn't a brake line back then <laughs> down one of your pieces of housing toward the back end of your bike mm-hmm. yeah and you it's had like who who could make the wired avocet thing look the cleanest like that was the
2: mark of a good mechanic yep and and you had to figure out if you had a, a 32 or 36 hole hub for the little for the little magnet ring yep mm-hmm. <laughs> yes those days are different now The good old days. The good old days.
1: Well, I have. uh, I've convinced myself that now that I need some sort of heart rate based watch thingy. I'm not exactly sure which one. Maybe this Wahoo one is the one for me. I I haven't done any research whatsoever. But yeah, I don't want to look at my power. I just want to, you know, keep track of stuff and keep an eye on my heart rate afterward and make sure my ticker isn't going to just explode. Just want to go for a bike ride. Yeah, I just want to go for a bike ride.
3: Yeah, man. I don't need. I don't even wear a watch anymore like I moved down to Hawaii and I just stopped wearing a watch man that's so cool is that like because of the you know laissez-faire attitude no man my phone has the time
2: on it what are you quoting there Abby
3: we're getting (laughs) Sarah (laughs) Marshall
2: I love it when Abby cracks herself up Uh.
3: guess what Kaylee just sounded like like yeah, yeah man. man. I don't, you know, <laughs> I need to look in my heart. Right now.
1: Accurate. Accurate. <sighs> All right, it's time to switch over to the racing world. Dane has now joined us. Well, we're going to talk about the, the, the sort of the whole season uh, and, and a bit of a rundown of what we liked, what we didn't, the things that worked. The things that didn't, but before that, we got a bit of news about Chloe Dygert, multi-time world champion. Right, Abby?
3: Yeah, so there was um, the news that she signed to Canyon SRAM um, for four years, and that was followed by kind of a flurry of uh, anger about some past uh, tweets that Chloe has liked that have some transphobic and racist tendencies, so basically, it all kind of snowballed into over the weekend. The Canyon SRAM team put out a statement that the whole team was basically going to have to undergo training and, and everyone was inclusive and, and, you know, kind of the same old thing that we've been hearing from Wol well, Trek. Um, and, and Chloe put out an apology as well for uh, how her actions made people feel. So it's relevant because we are in this new age where um, a person, you can't quite like hire somebody based solely on their performance. You also have to think about their personality and the uh, presence that they bring to a team, um, which we learned with the Quinn Simmons incident and the backlash that Trek Segafredo got for that. And now, basically, the same thing has happened to Canyon Stram. Um, on a smaller scale, because I think what Chloe, the actions of Chloe aren't as loud as the, those of Quinn, like she hasn't actively tweeted things, but she, you can look through, you know, her history and, and, and find some questionable decisions. Um,
2: well, you, 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 used, you used to be able to anyway, I, from what I can tell, she basically unliked all the stuff that, uh, was kind of controversial.
3: Um, it is very interesting because I think back in the day, like teams used to hire people based purely on th- if they can win races or not.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the important point here is that you know as an athlete, it's it, clearly you, you sort of represent you represent the brands that are plastered all over you, right, and so, you know, people scream First Amendment here in the United States all the time, and the First Amendment is what gives you sort of this freedom of speech and and freedom of assembly and a bunch of other things, Um, but that's from the government. That's not from your employer, and and that's a very important distinction, is that, you know, if you say something that your employer finds to be uh, against its own values or that your employer's customers don't like, your employer can can fire you, cannot hire you, can do whatever basically whatever they want. Uh, the First Amendment does not protect your job, uh, and so that is, I think, why we're seeing uh, that's why we're seeing you know things like Trek Sigafredo come out and and well put Quinn through some training, although it sounds like that has been now settled uh, for better or for worse, and Canyon Saram hopping on this particular. Uh, this particular event over the weekend, um, and and sort of making its its position known, and basically not really giving the athletes the uh, the option of retaining or at least presenting the views that they have in the past, um, which they are absolutely they have every right. To do. They have, uh, sorry, not, not the athletes have every right to do, but the, the companies involved, the teams involved have every right to basically demand that their athletes uh, conduct themselves in a certain way. Um, you know, you can scream thought police on this one or, or whatever, but at the same time, these your value as an athlete is in your ability to essentially inspire others to either purchase something or follow something or just be a fan and if you are if you are unable to do that due to your own views then those views are a problem for your job and as i said before your employer has every right to either try to change those views or or fire you or whatever uh and i think that this is not the last time we're gonna see this within professional sport um you know we've seen the exact same thing in the other direction right uh uh
4: Oh, the uh, Turkish, uh, Turkish, uh, German, Turkish, uh, Mehmet Özil.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a there's a, a soccer player, football player for Arsenal, um, or was I should say, uh, who got in a bunch of hot water because he supported the, I believe it was the Uyghurs in China, and then the Chinese government apparently came in and kind of uh, forced the team again there's 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 varying there's varying views of of how this exactly went down but basically the guy hasn't played soccer since he supported the Uyghurs in China uh he has been pushed off the team he's one of the best in the world and he has basically stopped playing uh so you know these things go in both directions right and it all depends on what the what the team uh and the sponsors behind it are what sort of pressures they're feeling and at the moment in most of the U.S. and Europe, the pressures on a team are to appear more progressive, more uh, more accepting, uh, pushing equity, and, and all those things. And, and if you are not doing that, or if you have athletes that are not doing that, you're going to get pushback from
2: the audience. I mean, it's definitely a tricky time right now because there are a lot of people who say, like, you know, just stick to sports. You know, why can't we just, you know, they're looking at these athletes purely based on their athletic performances and and there certainly was a time where we had the luxury of doing that but I mean for better or for worse in this day and age of social media really the I feel like the only way an athlete can can maintain this aura of being like only an athlete is if they are completely silent on social media or about everything outside of their athletic performance so I think the tricky thing is when you have an athlete who is who is present on social media and who isn't necessarily shy about making their opinions known then kaylee like you said i mean you do have you know in the united states you do have freedom of speech you are free to express your opinions but that ability to express your opinions does not guarantee your your employment it does not guarantee that like you know if if someone Let's say Trek Segafredo had had let go of Quinn Simmons, for example. You know, people will scream freedom of speech, so on and so forth. Quinn can still say whatever he wants. Like, that freedom of speech has not been diminished, but they don't have to keep him employed. And ultimately, when you're talking about an athlete and sponsorship, like, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care who you are or how good you are. If you are sponsored by a team, you are effectively an employee, and your job is... Sure, to win ostensibly, but your job ultimately is to help that employee sell more things or get more exposure. And the way that you do that is partially by winning, but also by being a presence and being a marketable asset right? Yeah, I mean, freedom
1: of speech is, is not freedom from consequences for that speech, right? Uh, it's freedom from being jailed by the government for your speech. That's that's the only thing that, that, is, that it protects. Uh, and that's, again, only in, in the United States. <laughs> Most of the world does not have the equivalent of a First Amendment. Um, and we are talking about teams that are often not based here. Uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the First Amendment argument is basically completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. The uh, Yeah. Again, I don't think we're going to see the last. This is not the last time we're going to run into this particular issue. Uh, The reality is that athletes are now much more than their athletic ability, and that was maybe not the case, as you say, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. But they now, you know, again on the opposite side of the coin, a perfect example is like Lachlan Morton, who gains massive amount of of value for his sponsors and his team through non traditional means. Right? Uh, Him winning GB Duro. Is not the source of his value. It's the story that surrounds that, and the fact that he's a personality. And both there's both sides of that coin. And you know, I think athletes essentially they just need to realize this and, and realize that you know if you are going to stay silent on social media and if you are going to be sort of devoid of personality, then you better win some stuff because that's the only other way that you can you can create any value at this point.
2: Uh, and
1: every single athlete is going to have to sort of deal with that
2: with that push and pull there i'm also kind of surprised that that teams haven't gotten savvier in terms of you know kind of heading these things off because like i mean regardless of what you think about what chloe has said or expressed support for and whatnot i mean those those views are clearly kind of ripe with controversy for a lot of people and you know You'd have to think that someone at Kane Sram has you know maybe raised their hand and be like, "Hey, maybe we should like think about doing something beforehand instead of just announcing the signing like how could they have not foreseen that this was gonna happen?" Well, they say that they didn't know,
3: yeah, it is really interesting actually because i I think that when they announced this, they were so excited, and all the brands and and everyone was so excited and it's kind of crazy because like. When the Quinn Simmons incident happened, Chloe was kind of in all of the talk about that as well. So it's not like nobody knew beforehand, you know, in the cycling world. So it was, it was very, uh, very odd that they, they didn't see it coming. But I also, I also don't agree that now, now athletes are like, have, have to kind of be a model for, for, you know, younger generations and everything. I feel like athletes have always been something to look up to and whether they like it or not, they need to conduct them themselves in a way that it, that children will look at them and be like, this person is someone that I want to be with, be like, and they, they need to be good people because it doesn't matter. You know, now it's more relevant because of the world that we're living in. But like, I grew up Thinking that Christina Kosnick was like the coolest person ever, and I dyed my hair pink because I wanted to be her. Like, it's not a new thing that athletes are role models. So. But, I don't know. No, but there's no think... filter.
1: Well, I think the difference now is that before, before you knew of Christina, but basically probably through press, uh, yeah. you know, very sort of carefully handled press moments where there was a press officer standing next to her and a journalist mm-hmm. standing in front of her, and now everyone's got Twitter, and that is the difference, right? Is yeah, that there is sure. no filter in front of these athletes, and that they have to they have to learn to filter themselves or to just be a good person to begin with and then you don't have to filter yourself you can say exactly what you think and people will like you anyway uh those are your two options basically either either sort of understand cynic quite cynically what what your audience wants and give them that uh i
2: I do think that that's that's essentially the role of a of a professional athlete in a lot of ways yeah i mean for sure that role has never changed it's just that you know those sorts of insights into who a person is is just a lot more visible now
0: can can I just recommend a book for everybody to go out and read? It's John Ronson, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's a British author, and it is basically about this situation, but within not just the sporting world, but within business, just random people basically visit who have been publicly shamed. And some of them, you're like, rightfully so, they've been publicly shamed. And others are on that cusp of, is it is it right? I'd love to do, to do a follow up and sort of di- do a deep dive into the sporting world or people that present a brand because as James says as as everybody says you are you you're selling a brand you're se- not just selling yourself you're selling a company selling a product
1: Anyway let's move on from this topic again not not the last time we're going to be talking about it um uh, for better or for worse you know I I think that a lot of this stuff is is pushing cycling in the right direction uh hopefully but there's it's always it's always a bit fraught because you are talking about sort of the well the the opinions of people uh and you know the difficulty in sort of pushing everyone together in the same direction it's a really difficult thing so yes let's leave that for now and move on to the bike racing season in a reasonable amount of time, we want to sort of sum up the 2020 racing season and talk about some of the highs and the lows and the bits we loved and the bits we didn't.
5: Where do we want to start off? Uh, Richie Port didn't win on Wollonga Hill. That's, that's a big <laughs> that was deal.
4: actually That was actually a sign that this year was going to be totally different.
5: Yeah, I mean he won the race. It's true, which is impressive that he won the tour. But he didn't win on Walunga Hill, which is wild. I mean, we, we've just year in year out that that's yeah. been the constant. And then this we year, so really,
3: we what he's done wrong every year is win on Walunga Hill.
5: <laughs> that's right, right.
3: He <laughs> just should never win Walunga Hill again.
5: That's it. That's the true. season. I mean, that's really all the important talking points. I think uh, <laughs> you said confine it into a small, you know, reasonable amount of time. So there you go. I did what I could. <laughs> So
1: Richie Port needs to not win on Walonga ever again and then he'll podium at at the Tour de France henceforth. Yeah. yeah. Good point.
3: Hell, if he loses on Walonga, he might win the Tour de France.
1: Yeah. True. So he has to not win Tour de Under at all. Yeah. Yeah. And lose on Walonga. Yeah. And then he'll win the Tour de France. Now let's talk let's talk Grand Tours. I think that we can start with Well, we can start with the Tour de France, because it was the first Grand
5: Tour of the year. Yeah, we should probably talk about how we got there, too. I mean, this is sort of an unprecedented season because of something that, I mean, shortly after the, the, the uh, Tour de Nunder, we ended up stopping the season uh, after Paradis. And so the Tour de France was, yeah, as you said, the first Grand Tour of the season, uh, and it started in August. And so a- any conversation we're going to have about Grand Tours or, or monuments or whatever, I mean, it's it's all in the context of this wacky season where riders were coming in maybe less prepared than they'd hoped or in, in some cases maybe over prepared uh and and then we would get these races that actually ended up being fantastic but uh with all, a number of riders whose seasons were derailed or just completely changed around because of the fact that we had a racing hiatus due to the pandemic so rather than sort of go race by race here, which I think would just take
1: us way too long, let's just talk sort of big themes, right? So the first big theme I want to talk about is how ridiculously tight all of these grand tours were, right? We had all three, what combined time, uh, the gap between first and second was what like two minutes or something like that. Yeah, combined it's all like that. for all three grand tours, uh, each one was was under a minute. Crazy, crazy, crazy tight. Do we think that is related to the wild season, or is that just yeah, why did that happen? Why, why did we get three ridiculously
5: tight Grand Tours this year? I think a big part of it is just the, the fact that the, 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 in years past, there, there were often much wider gulfs between who were the best teams and, and, uh, and who were the sort of second and third best teams. And now I think that's kind of closing. Uh, I think some teams have, have improved, and other teams I think have just learned how to, how to beat that or at least how to contend. Uh, we saw at the Tour de France. We talked every every podcast we did at the Tour de France. We talked about Jumbo Visma versus Ineos. I mean, that was that was the talking point for the entire tour, and neither one of those teams won the race. Uh, and then at the Giro d'Italia, although Ineos did win, Web they took it to Ineos, and they you know they almost won that race. Uh, and then it was Ineos versus Jumbo at uh, the Vuelta, but we had other teams. We had other teams kind of in the mix. Hugh Carthy, uh, EF was in the mix. So th- this is I mean that's a pretty big change from I think in, in years past.
1: I guess I'm asking the question because we would like that to happen again. We want tight bike racing at Grand Tours. And what was it about this year that, that gave us that?
2: <laughs> Rim brakes.
3: <clears throat> James, you're fired. <laughs> Get James out.
2: <sighs> Sorry, what, did I say something?
3: I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the training leading up to it, like how people handled the lockdown and stuff like that, and how everyone was on pretty equal footing going into it. I mean, yeah, there was some countries had full lockdown, some were allowed to train outside and stuff like that. But I think like some of it has to come down to that, you know, there was no such thing as well unless you vastly overtrained during the during the lockdown there was no such thing as like race fatigue like you couldn't overdo it going into the tour or something like that so i think that that yeah some of it has to do with you know people either timing it right or not timing it right
4: i think everybody just raced every race as if it was the last one so there was far less planning uh, like the Team Sky planning that we had in the past at every stage and every kilometre and every what uh, was planned before. And, and uh, we didn't know if we would make it past rest day one at the Tour de France. The same happened in the Giro. The same happened in the World Tour. Those were very exciting moments in the Grand Tours, the first rest days, the first rounds of testing. So everybody was just racing. It's like, okay, if we've got this stage win, if we've got this, we've got this, at least we've got something. So I think that it was far less predictable racing because uh, the planning went overboard.
1: Abby, something you, you said—something you said about the the sort of preparation being different, the ability of various riders to stay motivated without racing, right? It's a very different. Trying to prepare for a Tour de France when there's you know only racing for a couple of weeks beforehand, and prior to that you're basically entirely on your own. That's a very different. Style of preparation than what most of these writers are used to, and and some were clearly able to do it, and some were clearly not. Right, Shadi you've mentioned before that you think it's, it's it's a lot maybe tied up in in who had a family and who didn't, right? Who had who had kids at home that were requiring attention and and time, and who could just you know sit around and and spend their entire life on Swift. Uh, I think there's probably something to that, right?
0: For sure, yeah. It's like. Anybody who's had to work at home with a family around will know that it's it's been been hard. You have you think, ah, oh, can put six seven hours to one side and just go and sit in the bedroom, or if you're lucky enough to an office and work, but it real realistically it's impossible. You're getting interrupted all the time, and I'm positive it's the same with guys, especially the the older guys who have got families. They won't be used to being home for for long periods of times, unless it's in the winter. And I think a lot of them will have taken um, taken that time to spend with their kids and use it wisely. I think because like, um, day I read an article with him a while back and he's he's a new father. He's I think his son's only just coming up to a year old. And he said he was going to find it really difficult going away on his initial training camp. So yeah, these guys are going to use the time of their kids constructively and it would have it would have stopped them from training as much as they had hoped i'm guessing and ever there's the you got the young you've got the young guns as well and that as we've seen this year the young guns have come out yeah doing a superb job
1: shoddy that kind of brings me to the nice little segue here well done by the way perfect segue into all these young riders who did so well this season and potentially a tie in again to the fact that they have no families. They have very few responsibilities outside of just riding their bikes and in a time and they're probably young and motivated, right? They, they haven't been at, at this game all that long. They have the ability to, you know, get out there or as it were, not get out there, uh, sit on Zwift for five, six hours a day and get themselves super, super fit. Maybe better than some of the riders who uh, had been around the block a few more times and might be struggling with motivation after a longer career. Do we think that that is, is truly a reason for these young riders racing so well this year? Was was it a result of essentially being able to work harder in lockdown than some of their uh, more seasoned competitors?
5: I think it could have helped. I think the the, the groundwork was already laid them. I mean, we already had a, a situation coming into this season even before all this where there were a number of younger riders already primed to succeed. I mean, Negan Bernal won the tour last year. Tata Pogacar was third at the Vuelta last year when he was, you know, like 15, basically. I mean, he, he was already a rising star at a really young age. Remco Evanapool, already very young and, and have, uh, had a lot of success last season. So I think it was, that may have been a factor, but it, we already had the the foundation for that with some very talented young riders, uh, which, you know, we still have very talented young riders. They're, they're, maybe a, they're a year older, but they're still very young going into next season. Yeah, I mean that that
1: interview that we that I did with Inigo Samilan who's who's Tadej Pogačar's coach uh it was like a month or two ago now and he was basically saying it's more, you know, they've all got power meters, they've all got coaches really really young. They're all better prepared when they get to the early years of the World Tour and as we said before because we have their power numbers and their coaches have their power numbers, they know how good they are. They don't necessarily wait to to push them into into the highest levels of racing, uh, and these things combined is probably the probably more of a factor in all these young riders racing really well this year. But I, I do think there's something to what Chadi saying is that like if you've got literally nothing else going on, you're probably going to have a better time, you know, sitting on Swift for five hours a day. There's got to be something to that. And on, and on the opposite end of that, we know that some riders, like Elio Viviani has talked about this. Who struggle to ride inside? I think Peter Sagan's probably another perfect example, right? He struggled to ride inside. I mean, I mean, Sagan said numerous times that he has no interest in riding inside. As a result, it took him a really long time to find his form this season because he probably wasn't training as hard over the summer as some others because, you know, he's living in Monaco, and the lockdowns there in the spring were pretty draconian. They couldn't really ride anywhere. So it was ride inside or do almost nothing. And I do think that that, you know, even if that's back in April and May and June, that's still going to affect a rider's form in August and September, because you know, you're talking about such massive volume for these pro athletes that it builds and builds and builds and builds. And and all it takes is, is a bit too long of a break in April and may. And you know, your, your, your season, your fall season, as we had, it could be kind of ruined.
3: I think also, especially when it comes to the grand tours, the grand tours take so much more um, specified training to be able to win one of those, and, yeah, when it comes to the one days and stages and stuff like that, of course, we, we've had, like Dane said, young riders in the past that have done quite well and, and are continuing to do quite well and are still young. But I think for the one days, like, having, you know, Teo Gegenhart, riders like that who... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys.
0: We're talking Willow's about... Willow's joined the podcast. Yeah, we're talking about um, work, difficult work, difficult work, work from home and i've got my daughter who's just climbing over us she has stuff to abby on a daily basis don't you will say hello to abby, <laughs> <laughs> say hello
3: to abby. <laughs> no <laughs> when it comes to the those young kids that were able to just buckle down and completely focus on one goal and that being you know the season and as we've literally just seen with shoddy and i'm sure that james can attest to it as well getting stuff done with a kid around is not as easy. So I think even, even if the guys at home had wanted to buckle down and train as much as the, the, the younger kids, which I I find it hard to believe that they would have wanted to, um, like with families around. And I don't think that they like would have been afforded that luxury just because, you know, they're especially like in Spain, the wives are also like confined to home and can't go to work and stuff. And kids get very, uh, very stir-crazy when they're locked inside in a small apartment for months. I,
4: th- I think young riders have more to prove as well. You know, if you're 30, 35, uh, you can maybe sit it out for a season. You have a long-term contract. You've already won-, won stuff. And if you're younger, maybe you're more eager like to really show, like, this is my chance. is maybe the opportunity of a lifetime that I'm going to get here, especially in this year's Giro, where so many of the big stars were just abandoning or not showing up or crashing out or, or whatever. Uh, Nothing to to withhold from Gegenhardt's win or Hindley or Keldemann. But I think if you're younger, you have maybe more to prove and are a little bit more versatile also mentally to get through these tough times that you have something on the horizon. Um, And if you're older and already settled more in your career, um, maybe you're just like, okay, I'll just sit it out for a while and see what happens i don't know
3: i don't think there's i don't think there's such a thing as being settled in a career i think no matter where someone is in their career they're always fighting for a contract and they're always fighting to prove themselves i don't know if age really factors in that much when it comes to like someone fighting to you know prove that they still belong in the sport i think that every rider is always fighting to prove they belong
5: some of the biggest stars i think the the older biggest stars i think do it's not that many i I think it's not that that many riders but i think there is a category of some of the older veteran stars who might fall into that category. Most of them, I think, probably not. But there's there are a few writers whose contracts are secure, and this season was pretty unprecedented, and I think it is fair to, to assume that at least a couple of people might have said, yeah, I'll come back next year and I'll be fine.
3: I mean, especially this year, like, the the Olympic champion was fighting for a contract, Greg Van Evermet. And this year, nobody was safe this year. I mean, we even were questioning Sagan and his form and how long he's going to keep racing. Like, not that I'm that there's any validity to that. I don't agree with when people are like, Oh, man, Sagan, he's not won a race yet this year. Like he's clearly slipping. Maybe he should retire. That really bothers me when people say that. But Still, I think this year every single rider was fighting for a contract. I
1: think a counterpoint to this is Richie Porte, though, right? Richie Porte ha- actually uh, had a daughter, right? I think it was a daughter during the Tour de France. Uh, is at the probably the tail end of his career at this point. It's been around the block a couple times, and had his best Tour de France ever, right? Uh, there, there is there is something to. Uh, I don't think we could we, we you, you can't sort of Draw lines across this entire thing, right? You you can't make assumptions about how everybody is reacting to it. I think we're just sort of speaking in generalities here, but you know, there's there's counterpoints to all of this, which I think I think Richie's a
5: perfect one. Also, I'm really enjoying this conversation because I think it's giving all of us the ability to have a couple of ideas in the back of our minds for when we're not riding so fast. And and there's just all kinds of things that we can say now. And and I'm coming away from this thinking, well, yeah sorry guys, I'm (laughs) I'm getting a little older and I'm not as motivated. Um i I didn't just have a kid, so I'm not fast because Richie port shows that you have to have a kid and in, in, in order to finish on the podium you know right that 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 gives you that Dad motivation. Wants. so there's all kinds of things we can come away from this with
2: uh, dan, dan, dan i've had I've had excuses in the bank for years well james but you
5: you have had this the family to take care of you know during a pandemic so yeah that's a oh well, even before yeah, new, then,
2: though, new excuse. Even before I, i'm I'm always good with excuses i'm always yeah. good there's there's always a reason why I'm terrible
1: how does this sort of transfer over to the women's world tour season women's season in general uh i mean that the the racing was not as packed as on the men's side in fact far fewer races than normal i think uh what did we see there that, that would sort of either mirror what happened on the men's side or maybe contradict it
3: I think we saw some of the same things, but I mean, also not because obviously one of the strongest riders of the year is the woman who won the world tour, uh, standings overall. And that's Lizzie Dagnan and she's got a daughter at home. So she had, you know, the mom Watts were real with her. She was incredible this season. Um, I think something that's really interesting on the women's side that. Affected the men's side as well, but maybe not as much is just the financial impact that COVID had on the women's side. I mean, obviously men's teams are folding and there's a lot of guys out of contract, but women's teams from the beginning had a lot less money uh, to start with. So when they lost money, you know,
1: there's fewer teams to fewer teams to sort of catch them though. Yeah, riders, yeah, exactly.
3: Right? Exactly. And something that's interesting, I think, that came out of this year going into next year is the the way that the races are being raced right now. The distribution of talent is Matt is just being spread out over all the world to our teams. And for next year, I mean, with Anamie van Vluten going to Movistar, the distribution of talent is even more spread out. So the racing is going to be even more exciting. But this year, the women's racing was so exciting. I mean, yes, going into the races, it was pretty much the same top 10 people vying for the win at every race. But when you were actually watching the race, there was so much going on. And I think it was, I mean, the women's season this year, I think was amazing.
5: Yeah, we really had a Leveling a little bit on the women's side, too. I mean, uh, very similar to the men's situation where, I think, coming into the year, there's just all this talk of one or two riders and teams. And those riders and teams were still very good on the on the women's side, too. But we had kind of Trek enter the fray as a, as a real top-talent team. I mean, they had top-talent last year, but this year they really had the results with, with Uh Bulls-Domans, I think, kind of reemerged after Annemiek van Vuyten's sort of dominance for last year. And part of that is the fact that Annemiek van Vuyten crashed and, and hurt herself, which is unfortunate and you don't and you don't like to see that at all, uh, but it did mean that we got more yeah just m- more different riders taking big wins. Of course, Anna Vanderbreggen was huge, uh, winning basically every race like three years ago, and kind of got back to that a little bit this year. Sunweb won a World Tour race. Sarah Tizza won a World Tour race. Uh, so there were yeah there were not that many World Tour races on the women's calendar, unfortunately, because of the, the sort of constricted uh, season. But there were quite a few teams that were kind of in the mix on the season, which was pretty cool to see.
4: Yeah, the the COVID situation hit the women's peloton um, harder. We don't know the list just yet of the 2021 uh, teams that are going to enter. We know that some teams in Belgium are going to fold. Some of them are stepping up from amateur level. But the biggest thing that we already see at this this moment in both the Netherlands and Belgium and the UK is that women's races are the first ones to get cancelled. Because uh, of they, they mostly rely on small sponsors. You know, the local supermarket, the local restaurant, the local bar, the local carpenter shop, things like that. And they just basically, due to lockdown, can't go out and ask for sponsorship. And they just can't go out and ask for sponsorship, because every company is having a hard time. And we already see that some of some of the races for next year in the women's calendar are already out um, due to COVID. And especially situation in Netherlands and Belgium, if a local um, government or whatever has to make a decision, are we going ahead with the women's race or with the men's race? They almost always pick the men's race uh, to put their funds towards. So I think next year we're going to see most of the results of the COVID thing um, on the women's calendar, which was already visible this year because, um, well, I think we were basically left with the championships and the World Tour calendar. Most of it from 1.1, 2.1, Races was was scrapped, and when it comes to younger riders, I think it's still the the 30 plus um, section this year that that won the biggest races. Because um, even in this year, the gap between being a, a, a top uh, talented 18 year old coming from the juniors and getting into the same peloton as Van Vleuten, Van De Breche, Vosch, Vos, uh, et etc., is still still big. It's it's not getting any smaller. We've seen some. Mm-hmm breakthrough rides you know uh, Musich won the last stage in the Giro Rosa but most of the wins were the usual suspects in the women's uh, calendar yeah true yeah
3: one of the I th- yeah one of the things that really was a bummer about the women's peloton this or the rim- women's racing this season we got two stage races but we didn't see you know, the women's tour of Britain, tour of Norway. We didn't see, uh, like, Turingen tour. is not... Yeah, Bulls Ladies Tour. Turingen's not a world tour race, but it is one of my favorites. Like, there was basically no stage races for the women. It was kind of back to the old, like, World Cup one days, um, which was really interesting. But I think, yeah, it it's... That was one of the big bummers of the season.
1: Yeah. But at the same time you know we've talked a bunch about like slimming down the men's calendar right and and how the women's calendar this fall as you say was fantastic racing every single time and it's a bit of an example of that right like that's that's what a slimmed down calendar looks like and yeah there are fewer opportunities to win but it means that every single race is just so hard fought and matters so much that it makes for really amazing racing every single every single stage
4: yeah but the gaps on the women's calendar were really too big. There were periods of two two and a half weeks w- without any any racing going on and yeah that was uh that was really sad and and the stage racing is uh something that we really missed though we did have Ardesh though by the way, but nobody saw it because it was invisible
1: yeah, another issue that has yet to be solved,
4: which will be even harder well- to solve next year because if your budget is already tight. If you look at the smaller races who invest in a live stream, you know, uh, races like Elsie Jacobs in, in Luxembourg. They're they're a pro race, so that's the level just before below World Tour. If their sponsor money is tight, um, one of the first things that they are going to cancel is that live stream, because they don't have to do it. And if they don't have the money to do it, we won't see it. The World Tour races are obliged to do it, to give you some sort of life, live stream racing but the other races are not. And I think that is um, costs that will be um, too much of a burden for certain race organizers next year. So I fear that we might have enough women's racing next year, but I do fear that some of the live streams will be canceled and probably mm. a lot of them.
1: Yeah, that'd be a shame. Cause I feel like the momentum was good, right? It was, it was tr- trending in the right direction. But uh, as you say, it's, it's, it is sort of the first thing to get lopped off. Because the the you know, the race organizer wants the thing to happen, right? And that's the that's the primary goal. And then the live stream is very much viewed as sort of, just icing on that cake. I wanna I wanna pivot a little bit to another major theme of the 2020 season, which was safety. And we had an announcement from the UCI last week uh, that Dylan Groenewegen would be banned for not, or it has been banned for nine. Months for the Torah Poland incident. I want to discuss this and then just, just kind of discuss safety in general. Uh, I think it's safe to say, and you guys can correct me here, that the the general consensus amongst the Cycling Tips podcast is that that this is bullshit. Suspension is ridiculous. Yes, <laughs> it's that it's completely ridiculous. That nine months to Grunewagen. You know I think we all kind of agree that he probably deserves some sort of so, something needed to happen to him right like we, we, there needed to be uh, some kind of penalty but the real issue in that finale was more on the organizer uh than on Corona Wagon I would say
4: yeah that, I don't know who tweeted it but there was somebody who tweeted about the Discovery team thing that These guys, you know, Van der Velde, Leipheimer, etc., they kind of got that six-month suspension in the off-season for systemic doping use. And Dylan Groenewegen, for one split-second decision, on a very dangerous course with ridiculous um, barriers on the side of the road, gets a nine-month suspension. But we don't know the reasoning behind the suspension. The UCI just sent out a press release. Okay, this is it. He's eligible to race again on the 7th of May. And we don't give you any explanation into what went through our minds or what the reasoning process was of our decision. So we can only guess what they were thinking. Is it an example they're setting for everybody? Um, We don't know. I think they should come with a reasoned decision and also, well, improve the safety on the road, especially in Potent, since that Katowice arrival has been the subject of discussion among teams for quite some time.
2: I mean, this is me expressing my usual cynical self, but to me, it's it's the UCI basically just using him as a very visible scapegoat to make to kind of take the attention away from the fact that this is really their problem that they have to fix, and rather than go through the hard work of fixing the core problem that created this that created this this injury to begin with, they're just taking out the rider who was you know on the video anyway was you know arguably most at fault for what happened when it really. Yes, I mean, he maybe, he maybe have, you know, set the thing off as far as, like, you know, he was one who basically, like, you know, chopped him into the barriers, essentially, but the reason why he, he was so hurt was because of that finish line, uh, the, that finish line design.
4: And, and like many people probably already said, the UCI is now punishing the consequent of the crash. You know, if Fabio Jakobsen miraculously would have stayed upright or broke his collarbone, we would not have seen a nine-month suspension at all. Hey,
5: we talked about this. Uh, Kaylee, I know Kaylee and I talked about this on the day that it happened. Uh, the way that it was terrible crash, I mean, and 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 Jakobsen was obviously seriously injured based on another rider doing something he shouldn't have done. Uh, but we've seen swerves, we've seen irregular sprints generally, ju- just as bad that where the rider has managed to stay upright uh, and 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 come out okay, and has the the sprinter who put him in that position uh, or her has not been punished and uh, or was just relegated as opposed to being you know, banned for nine months. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's very much a uh, uh, penalizing the outcome, regardless of the intention, or regardless, regardless of the egregiousness of the action, which, which was pretty egregious, but nine months is uh, it's just compare. And if you look back to other sprints and, and what people have been, you know, banned for, pe- people have been banned nine months for, like, literally fighting. I mean, people have been banned nine months for punching guys, <laughs> uh, not, not for what Dylan Grunewagen did.
1: Yeah, if you look at almost any sprint, there's there's line deviation, right? And I do, I guess sort of to the UCI's credit, they've been relatively consistent this season in relegating riders who deviate from lines, right? We saw it a couple times in the Tour de France. Uh, it, it, they, they have been better about that and as I guess, trying to sort of show the sprinters that, no, you can't do this. Because for a long time, it was just sort of random, right? It was, you could deviate your line as long as you didn't crash anybody. And I still think that's, that's kind of the case. Uh, but they, they do seem to have been, they've been better, slightly better about saying, listen, if you deviate your line, you come in contact with anybody, we're going to relegate you, whether you crash anybody or not. So credit where it's due there. However, as you say, nine months is is completely out of line with any other penalty that they have handed out this entire season. And that line deviation was no worse than a lot of the line deviations that we've seen throughout the rest of the season. It just had a worse outcome. And that worse outcome was the fault of the organizer. However, again, to be cynical about it, the race organizer is the body that is paying the UCI to put this event on. Dylan Grunewagen is just a a bit of a pawn in this entire thing. It is much easier to give him a nine month suspension. You know, yumbovism is not going to try to appeal that because the, the PR and the optics of trying to appeal that would be horrible. They're just gonna say, listen, sit out till May. That's a very easy decision. A much more difficult decision is going to the Tour of Poland and saying, listen, you can't have a bike race anymore unless you fix this. And going to all the rest of the, the races throughout the season and say, listen, you need to go invest a bunch of money in barriers that aren't going to explode on impact, or else you can't have a race this season. And that's where the UCI has absolutely failed this entire
5: season and failed going back many, many seasons prior. I think one other sort of factor or uh, aspect of, of Grunewald's suspension is the timing. And I think, it's a, I think it's probably a big part of it that, the, that nobody's ever going to really – we're not going to know. I don't think people are going to come out and say this, but you know the, the race itself happened in August. Uh, the suspension comes down now in November, and when it's up, but when the suspension is over, the Giro will only just you know that, that's right before the Giro. So he's not going to miss that much actual racing. I think that's a big part of probably why he was suspended for nine months. In other sports, you you play for a team, and that team has games. And you can just say, okay, you're banned for for five games. You miss four games, whatever. In in the NFL, you're going to miss three games for doing this or that thing. You know, baseball, it's like 50 games because they play so many. Well, that's not how cycling works. And if the the UCI says, you know, you're going to miss, you know, 17 of your team's races, well, that's fine. You'll just target the the end of the season. Uh, There's really no easy way to do this. So by giving him a nine-month suspension, they're kind of, they're taking him out of, like, three early season races. That's, That's kind of what the suspension does. Because he's still going to end up being able to race. If he wants to, he could race multiple Grand Tours next year. Still,
4: all of them. Exactly.
5: So it's yeah. in the end, it's it's actually it's nine months, but it's not. He's not missing nine months of the next season, uh, and I think that's a
1: part and of it. He's going to be it's, there it's, for it's,
4: the birth of his son. Bingo.
1: Yeah, it, it's which is interesting because it's then this is a this is a, a penalty that is both uh, way too much right and also yeah. not enough
5: i mean he's not going <laughs> to miss at Peronis, the same time I guess, if right happens I mean, if you, if, <laughs> but
1: yeah yeah i i'm i'm still following i'm i'm still falling well on the side of this is just you know this is ridiculous and, and a 9 month suspension for this particular uh action is absurd regardless of how much racing he actually misses right um i just think it's it's so out of line with with what they do to every other sprinter when this exact
2: same thing happens. It's just, it's just stupid. Well, the only, thing, the only consistent thing with the UCI is inconsistency, right? That is very true. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see how they <laughs> you know, handle
5: future incidents like this. I mean, surely this is going to be an anomaly uh, because the inconsistency is so consistent with them, the UCI, that is. But we'll see. Maybe somebody else will get suspended for a really long time next time they do a, a sprint that hurts somebody.
2: I think in his first race back he should make a conscious decision to wear like knee high socks and just see if the UCI. Well, I, I, a I think that's really part of it. I, I really do. I think that's part of the response,
5: is the way the UCI is is there's like a backlash there against the people who are mad at them for only caring about sock length. And and I think this is the UCI partially saying, No, look, we can do other things. We can we can, you know, uphold the safety of the sport by levying an overzealous penalty at a rider who Maybe should have been banned for one month,
4: or maybe just banned them for two months for the rainbow stripes uh, upside down on their jersey, because that's a big infringement yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, very dangerous. Apparently, <laughs> it, well, it's good for it's good for their coffers, but I don't know it, how it really helps the sport. Two thousand euros, suspend uh, fine I mean, for that.
1: I mean, the argument with with Grunewagen is is you set an example, right, and you try to scare the sprinters straight. Uh, I, I just don't see I just don't see that being a, a, a reasonable thing because again, these are decisions that are made split second they are made instantaneously and sometimes they're not even decisions right I, I, I don't I don't know uh, how many of our listeners out there have ever tried to sprint at 65 70 kilometers an hour uh, with your head down because that's more aerodynamic and tried to ride in a perfectly straight line, but it is difficult. And I, I, you know, sometimes these things are accidents in this particular case. It didn't look really like an accident, but you know, line deviation is not always malicious. I think, I just think the UCI needs to take a step back and, and, you know, figure out, just figure out a way to make this a lot more consistent. Like I said before, I do think that they, they take, they took a step along that path this year, but it's still wildly, wildly inconsistent.
0: I disagree with you saying that they've taken a step this year. You look at how many times they've relegated somebody this year and it's probably only about four or five, which is pretty much the same as every other year, if you think about it. And it's, I think it's heightened because we've we've, we've noticed it as well because the season's so compressed, plus because of the situation that we're talking about, It's, it's in a it's forefront in our minds. I honestly don't think the UCI have ch- done any more than they have done any other year apart from this nine-month ban, which is basically just a ridiculous thing that they've done for, well, yeah, no other reason but to punish the situation rather than the, the, the rider. It's So, yeah, the UCI haven't changed the tune at all.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking of, of some of those Tour de France relegations that were somewhat controversial. But, yeah, you could be right.
3: I thought what was really interesting about um, post Greenwagen suspension news was the uh, interview with Patrick Lefavre, where he said he was going ahead with the legal actions against Greenwagen, but he also said in that interview that he wanted the teams, he specifically named the boss of Jumbo Visma, but um, I think he's trying to get the teams to kind of fund a private Safety organization, which is really interesting because we're also seeing the same thing now with the new cpa That's that's recently kind of come come into the news I mean, I think it it is like a product of the season that we've had that both of those things are happening now But I think people are just fed up, you know that we've been crying safety 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 for so long and nothing nothing's been done and and still yeah, like Poland didn't even get a, a slap on the wrist or anything for the barriers yeah. So. Yeah, I
1: mean, it will, you know, we'll see. We'll see next year whether they have different barriers at the finish line, uh, if the race exists. Uh, you know, then we'll know for sure whether there was any actual, uh, any actual discussion there, or or the UCI forcing the issue at all. I
3: mean, the UCI had no problem pulling the Giro Rosa from the World Tour calendar for not having live coverage, but something like this, they can't act on. Like, that's kind of ridiculous.
1: By the way, Patrick LeFevre threatening to sue over this thing is just just so absurd. <laughs> I can't I can't even I like, I don't even know what else to say about it other than like his own riders have have had far worse line deviations numerous times. Again, you're just sort of you're punishing the outcome, which again was not actually Grunewagen's fault. the 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 outcome is the the hor the horrific outcome is almost entirely down to the race organizer and those barriers that flew up all over the place. If that had been a normal finish, it would have been broken collarbone and that's it.
4: I, I disagree with you on that part. Um, he is going to sue uh, the organizers of the Tour of Poland for liability. And Fabio Jacobson himself is going to uh, sue Dylan Groenewegen for um, lost income because in the current um, market, um, the Koenig Quickstep is not obliged to pay Jacobs more than three months of his salary. Not every team pays their riders full salary when they're injured. That it happens in the men's World Tour teams as well. And if this were two carpenters having an accident and one would just uh, like throw away the step ladder of the other, causing him to not be able to work for six months, you would always al- also assume for liability. So there's a lot of emotion in this subject, but. In the end, I think it's still um, a civil, like it's still a case in in, in a legal way because this man, Fabio Jacobs, is not able to do his job for many months and somebody has to make up for the lost income in that respect. And I'm not defending Patrick Lefebvre at all, but he's paying um, Fabio Jacobs from his own pocket and officially the contract doesn't um, need him to do that if you're if you're injured longer than a certain time it doesn't automatically mean that you get full full paid sick leave
1: that's a pretty that's a pretty terrifying precedent to set within the professional problem, yeah. cycling that you can that you can sue a rider for causing you to crash because every crash is caused by somebody else and and you could you you it just you set off this chain reaction of all of a sudden you know i just don't i don't that that's it happened a few a years ago thing.
4: in soccer, or football, as we call it. There was one guy who kicked one other uh, football player so hard that he broke his leg and he was forever not able to play anymore. And they did the same thing. That The, 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 d- the judge um, argued, okay, this is the amount of money you could have made in your career that is now being cut short due to this um, terrible injury that was uh, caused by this and this person. And uh, he got... Um, His damage is, like, paid for.
1: That's wild to me.
4: End of the day, you're entering a sport.
0: You're going into a sport. You know there's danger there. It's like going... Oh, no, this is an extreme case. It's like joining the army. And then thinking, oh, it's going to be safe for me. Cycling isn't a safe sport. You know that going into it. You know that careers can be short anyway. And it just seems absolutely ridiculous. Like we say, it's... You're going into it. You're going into it. Yeah, going into a job where yeah, you are gonna come up against risks.
1: Yeah, sort of. It's it's built in. It's baked into the sport. I mean, that's 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 just part of. Yeah, I mean, you know.
0: Why isn't there insurance we're from the face? United States? Right,
1: we're we're the we're, we're the, why isn't there we're the most insurance? litigious nation on earth. Yeah, we're we're the most lit- litigious nation on earth. We sue we sue McDonald's for giving us hot coffee. Uh, we Super goes you know, egos. Th- 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 yeah yeah we, we, we sue for everything here in the United States and and uh, maybe that's why'm I'm, I'm particularly sort of a, I don't know, that bothers me so much because I hate that about American society, and this just seems like such a, a dangerous path to walk down when, when like I said, you, you start you start suing people for for cutting months out of a career or ending a career. I mean these things happen all the time, every single crash in cycling, not every single almost every single crash professional cycling is caused by somebody near you, right? Uh, e- either they change the line and force you hit the brakes when you weren't expecting to, or they touch, or you touch front wheel, or they put your their shoulder into you in a sprint. I mean, it's just a very dangerous sport. And, and to apply uh, fault and damages to those incidents would really make, it, it would change the sport dramatically, and I, and I think not for the better.
3: But Jakobsen probably can't sue the race because he, he all the riders have to sign a lia- liability waiver before they enter.
4: And he's a private so. person; he's not a company like the Koenig Quickstep is. But if would you, as a car, as as Pascal Ackermann in uh, what was it Lombardia, crashing into that car, would you sue that driver of that car if your fork breaks in Roubaix because it was a um, a fabrication fault by I don't know what kind of bike brand? And you broke your teeth, and you had ten thousand euros of repairs on your teeth. Where would you, where would you go then? You know, um, I, we don't I have we don't have litigation. Well, those, those
1: aren't those aren't standard safety concerns that I will enter a bike race, understanding that I'm going to be in a peloton of 170 people, and they're going to do things that I may not know that they're going to do, and that may cause me to crash. I mean, that's that's just an understanding when you go into a bike race. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I can't I can't I, I can't even count on all of my hands and all of my and all of my toes the number of times that I've crashed in a bike race. It it's it happens. It, it you know, it, it could have ended a lot worse for me. Uh, I came off with just skin loss every time, right? Uh, but this is just one of those things if you don't want to fall
5: down, don't be a bike racer. That's just the reality. Yeah, I mean to use the, the carpenter analogy, I feel like if Grunuwig and and, and Jakobson are two different carpenters suing each other they're both standing on a ladder, they're both reaching for the same tool, uh, and only one of them is going to get it, and that's that's the job that they've signed up for. And if the ladder breaks, then you can sue the ladder company, because you you came into this thinking that your ladder was not going to, to snap going over the cobbles of Roubaix. But if the guy knocks you over on the way to the tool, that's what you signed up for, and I think that, that's why we're a little concerned with, with people being able to sue each other for yeah, for something like this. If if somebody, you know, if somebody, the carpenter whacks you with the saw intentionally with no other you know, purpose than malice, then fine. But this seemed to be a, a pretty common racing incident with a really terrible outcome. And I think that's why we're concerned that if this precedent is set, then we're going to see sprinters just suing each other left and right.
1: Can I just say that none of us are lawyers and we don't really know what we're talking about? Just as a, a disclaimer. I don't know. And, and certainly and certainly when it comes to, to like European labour law, which I know absolutely nothing about. Uh you know Do you
0: want me to bring me mate on who's just stood next to me at this garden center? <laughs>
5: <laughs> What's Willow's opinion? I
1: want to hear Willow's opinion there on this. He used to be
0: a mayor, yeah. We we need to
1: we need to we need to cut this off. We need to cut this off. Let's uh let's wrap this episode up for today. Let us know what you think in the comment section on twitter if you think we're absolutely insane let us know as a brief reminder this podcast a lot of what we do at cycling tips is brought to you by our members at velo club if you are not a velo club member you can head over to cyclingtipscom slash sign up it's about 79 us dollars a year that equates to like a coffee or two Every month, and it's a huge part of what we do here at Cycling Tips. It is the reason why we have people like Abby on staff. It's the reason why we can create all these podcasts for you. It's the reason why you know we can speak our mind in tech reviews, and we're not beholden to the industry in ways that a lot of our competitors are. Uh, it is, like I said, a massive part of what we do. It's sort of the backbone of Cycling Tips at this point. And so, if you like what we do, and you like this podcast, and you just like the site. Consider becoming a member. We would appreciate it. CyclingTips.com slash sign up. Thanks. All right. That's it for today's episode. Got a bit heated there at the end. I enjoyed it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Wrapping it up. We will be back next week. Bye, everybody.
2: We could do. We could do a little pop quiz. You, you could. You could. Like, I would have to answer in three seconds or less. Like, who won the Who won the Tour? uh I honestly don't remember. Who won the Giro? Uh,
3: jo- James, who won the Giro? Uh, the,
2: the Giro was Teo, right? Teo yep. Gegenhardt? Okay, that Gattaboy. one I got.
3: That's really the only one you need to know. Yeah, James, who won the Vuelta?
2: Roglic wasn't. Wait, it was James, Roglic, right? who won right? Tour Roglic? Of Roglic? Flanders?
3: <laughs> was it Roglic? James, who won Flanders?
1: We should include this in the episode. <laughs>
2: pass
3: James who won the women's Flanders
2: mm, pass
3: who won Roubaix
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one unfortunately that one I do nobody know. won Roubaix yeah yeah. I would argue we all lost Roubaix
1: yep
3: James who won the climbers jersey at the Vuelta <laughs> that's
4: shoddy it's shoddy's always, favorite it's already gleaming
3: Come on, James! Don't I, let me I, I down.
0: Get,
2: here. I, get no, I That get was nothing too many. That was so many I get nothing. Hints. I get nothing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we all watch <laughs> uh, that.
1: That was said very Frenchly. All right, I'm gonna. I'm cutting this off. <laughs>